and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our Brian De Palma series, I am joined again by my good friend, John Presnell. This has got to be our 10th De Palma podcast. We have done everything we can to uh, remind America of this great master who is, by the way, alive around 80 now, and at least before COVID, he was still making uh, very good thrillers. So hopefully he will be honored in a way he deserves and in a way he has not been until now. In fact, uh, John and I are also doing hard work trying to show why he has not been honored. He is uh, clearly a man of the left, but uh, he's also been the most trenchant and you could say almost obscene or explicit, as uh, people politely want to say, critic of liberalism. We have recently talked about Carrie and the Fury, his 70s horrors that show the domestic and foreign policy of America beyond the 60s of a post-war America where the power and the amazing achievements after World War II begin to seem very questionable. It's a time for Americans to worry about the future as, as, as it is today. And it's also, therefore, a time in a way for Americans to recapitulate, to ask what happened? How did we get here? And uh, Brian De Palma chose these kinds of thriller and horror stories to reveal that things that we thought were good or innocent, or at any rate, no big deal, might have consequences that will horrify you. As with Carrie and the Fury, so also with today's podcast, we will be talking about 1980s Dressed to Kill. It's a movie with more impressive cast than most of the De Palma movies. There's Michael Caine, there's Angie Dickinson, and uh, therefore a look at the past and future of America, specifically the sexual revolution. Mm -hmm. Now, this is also the podcast where John and I make our bid for cancellation. And uh, so, John, I will let you uh, get us started down the road to perdition. Uh, I I'm, thank you very much for uh, doing this podcast with me, for recommending Dress to Kill, for being willing to talk about this stuff. It's a shocking co- coincidence that somehow the 70s uh, were, were a beginning of the transgender craze in America. Mm-hmm. And of course, nowadays, it's full blown. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the other hand, if you look in the interim from the 80s to 2015 or so, it seemed like nobody cared. Yeah. This was never going to be ish- an issue. And in a way, it made uh, De Palma's movie look uh, sort of unnecessarily disgusting. Yeah. But uh, in fact, as with all his movies from the 70s, it's quite prophetic about the future of America, the future of liberalism, about the kinds of struggles we would have to face once we affirm a certain kind of identity as the core of human action, as the core of human desirability. Tell us about uh, Dress to Kill and how are we going to uh, orient our audience to, to look at this movie, which is indeed quite shocking still. Yes, it, it is still quite shocking. Uh, it's from 1980. And so in a weird kind of way, you could say it's the uh, 20th anniversary of Psycho. And, you know, I think about that because, you know, when the movie came out in 1980, it had two kind of major contemporary criticisms made of it. One of which is it was just kind of a campy, trashy kind of rehash of, of uh, Alfred Hitchcock movies and of Psycho. And, and in a way, obviously, there's a self-conscious nod or homage to Hitchcock going throughout this. But of course, De Palma is going to be picking up on some of these more troubling themes that Hitchcock identified 20 years earlier, except now we're 20 years later. We've gone through the 60s and we've gone through the 70s. The sexual revolution has kind of come to a peak and in a way kind of become normalized. And so we're not talking about radical revolutionaries who want to transform institutions in this uh, movie, but rather we're looking at uh, a class, maybe upper middle class people uh, who are already living within it and in many respects embody it, although embody it in different ways. And so we have this theme of kind of uh, sexuality and the releasing of sex from any kinds of limits or restraints of shame or of the law or of custom. These things seem to have disappeared more or less. They're, they've withered away. And yet we have you know ordinary people still living their lives and they're now troubled by their desires. Now, you, people have always been troubled by their desires. And we see this kind of, uh, in, in several characters, this kind of strong desires, strong erotic desire, uh, sexuality, sexual desire uh, kind of coming into play. And so with one of them is kind of the Angie Dickinson character 
and she is your kind of lonely, unsatisfied, bored housewife. You had mentioned earlier, she's kind of a throwback to kind of 19th century novels like Emma Bovary or Anna Karenina, but now in New York City in a kind of a trashier uh, way, more maybe American way in certain, at least with the Palmas kind of, uh, I think deliberately kind of bad taste uh, in, in, in presenting that. Um, and so we have her and her adventure and her trying to seek some kind of satisfaction for her erotic desire because she's incredibly unsatisfied. And then on the other hand, we have kind of the scientific world, in particular psychoanalysis, um, but the doctor himself has sexual desires that he represses. And it's that kind of strong repression and his adherence to both the kind of respectability he has as a doctor and connected with that is his science that leads to this division within him. And so he's, He's what the movie refers to as, as kind of transsexual. Gender was not what was emphasized. Sexuality seemed to be what was, and sex seemed to be what was it, uh, emphasized in, in the movie here. And of course, we don't realize this until much later, but of course, the Michael Caine character has this split personality. And when his sexual desire is activated, especially towards a woman, in this case, Angie Dickinson, it brings out this other side, this character, this female character called Bobby. So Dr. Elliot is also Bobby, we find out later on. And of course, Bobby becomes a psychopathic killer and kills Angie Dickinson very early in the movie, just like Marion's character in Psycho gets killed early in the movie. And that, of course, was the second criticism of this movie at, at the time was the violence against women, uh, because it is a, it's a brutal murder with a, a straight razor. You actually don't really see much of it, but uh, you see one slash go across her hand. I believe another one goes across her face, and then that's about it. But of course, by closing the elevator door, it takes place in an elevator. Our imaginations kind of run wild, but we have this violence against this woman. And it seemed as if, well, because she was at the time having an affair, she had you know, jumped in a cab with this man and had kind of wild one night sex stand with him. And uh, for that for that sin, of course, she gets punished with murder. And, and this seemed to be somehow glorifying violence against women, which I don't think De Palma meant there either. You know, De Palma doesn't really go out and defend himself against the Hitchcock critics or against the claims of misogyny and violence against women. But of course, those were two major criticisms. And of course, now today, although one would think maybe even back then, of course, the movie is, is attacked by or criticized by you know, the transgender advocates and, and transgender you know, critics and so forth. Because here, you know, well, what, what? You have a trans individual, the doctor, who is also a psycho killer. So what is the movie saying? That all trans people are going to be psycho killers? Well, no, it's not saying that at all. But what it is saying is that when you kind of release desire from any kind of restraints and those restraints seem to disappear, well, a lot of things can happen. When that sexual revolution becomes kind of normal, it's not just kind of the freedom to have sex or be, be the kind of sexualized being you want to be, you know, apart from restraints, but all other kinds of aspects of human character and human nature, uglier sides of violence and of, of all kinds of crazy things and ugly things can also show their head. And so it, it just happens to be that this doctor is a transsexual and it turns out he's also ends up being a, a slasher killer. This is a slasher movie. And so we have these themes of kind of uh, sex and desire and then uh, in a society where there seems to be very little kind of repression anymore, um, or it, repression maybe in a different kind of a way, in an attempt to try to manage these things scientifically. And so we, in, in kind of the culmination, we could say, or at least the culmination of a sexual revolution, but not of in any way which I suppose you could say the first progenitors and first radicals who were pr promising kind of liberation, what we find instead is well, yeah, I suppose there's liberation in some cases, but here we see a case where all kinds of problems emerge um, and uh, violence and, and, and uh, the kind of destruction of, of, of human life is going to be perhaps part of it as well. And it's picking up on themes that, you know, Hitchcock, had, you know, perhaps were a little bit more uh, hidden in, in, in his film. De Palma's going to make them more explicit in kind of the multiple meanings of that word, right? And it's going to be ugly and it's going to be tawdry. It's kind of campy. Um, and um, I think the deliberate kind of Hitchcock kind of references also is to say, look, I'm, De Palma might be saying, I'm not the one who is 
creating this. This is something that's already been going on and has been spoken about. And, you know, there were transsexuals in the 70s. We just tend to forget that. There's a scene in the movie from a Phil Donahue uh, television story, television uh, show about a, a transsexual woman, a man who later in life decides to become uh, a man. And so there's a whole scene there where we can see the characters watching that, that TV show. And of course, right before we were recording, you know, we, came, we were talking about Renee Richards, the tennis player uh, who was a man and then, but trans transitioned into a woman and played uh, women's sports, professional tennis sports. And that was a controversy in the seventies as well. So it's not like, sure, those things may have disappeared for a while, but they've, in a way, they've kind of always been there. You know, I was also saying when I was in grad school in the 90s, all the kind of queer theory and transsexualism and so on, transgender, gender theory. I mean, that stuff, granted, it was only the academy, but it was still something that people were quite aware about. So De Palma, you know, is kind of making this explicit and putting it in a mainstream movie, although, of course, rated R. Uh, um, there were some attempts to even make it give it an X rating. Um, and I believe there is a kind of two versions you can watch where there's more kind of explicit nudity and so on that might give it an X. You know, these are the things, you know, begins with the dream in the shower and ends with the dream in the shower. So we're already pointing out here, Hitchcock, Hitchcock, but not just simply to be, look how clever I am. I've managed the grammar of Hitchcockian films and I can rehash it for the 80s. But no, let's see where we are today, 1980. Right of the things, the themes that Hitchcock, sex and violence, notions of shame or lack thereof, questions of guilt, right, and then of course questions of violence and crime that can be connected to to sex. You know, sex and violence; these two things uh, seem to, you know, from time immemorial, do have a connection to each other. And so here we are again in 1980, kind of looking at those themes. I think indeed uh, this is an attempt to show Americans what Hitchcock had tried to show and which people had objected to seeing. It's true that Hitchcock had become famous as an artist, as a, one of the American masters, Americanized, if you will. Yeah. But uh, that doesn't mean that anybody thought through what he was saying about America. And uh, De Palma seems to be the first of the directors to say that uh, Hitchcock was right. He looked at us and he saw what was coming. And uh, this increasing individualism, this increasing insistence on sexual identity and on personal fulfillment must bring out of us things that are much more horrifying than we are usually willing to see. So all these things that we bring out of the human psyche as a society by the various transformations we undergo, which we nevertheless fail to confront either artistically or in other ways, all come out in the Palma movies and uh, in the case of Dress to Kill, uh, he comes up with the transsexual transgressor. He is, uh, he is a man who transgresses not merely the limits of ordinary morality. We could say that conservatives are outraged at that. But he goes in, in search of an identity that uh, would shock liberals as well. That is to say the desires that uh, he enacts are intolerable even to the most liberated or the most liberal persons. Mm -hmm. So perhaps uh, which I should uh, very briefly outline the plot for our audience before we go get to talking through all these themes. Uh, Dress to Kill starts with Angie Dickinson in the shower. with uh, uh, She's having a sexual fantasy in a dream, it turns out, in that shower. But the fantasy uh, takes a hold of her when her uh, shower fantasy turns into a rape. Somebody appears behind her and rapes her while she watches her idealized husband shave. Mm -hmm. And uh, then she goes to the psychiatrist and complains about the marriage. We see that she is not at all satisfied with her husband. We will learn that this is her second husband. Her first died in Vietnam. And uh, we also learned that she has a teenage son who is obsessed with nothing but technology, a very mm -hmm. old American kid, but uh, obviously no kind of comfort to his mother. 
And uh, the shrink turns out to be no comfort either, since he only tells her what liberals are forever saying, that she should speak out about her feelings, confront her husband, and uh, I don't know what, demand a more satisfying uh, marriage, whatever that may be. Instead, she goes to the museum, pastime that's, if possible, even more passive than going to the shrink, (laughs) uh, allows her a kind of contemplation that is even less tied up with her life or what she should do with her life. And yet, everything changes in the museum the moment seducer shows up on the bench next to her. For a moment, she tries to defend herself with her respectability by uh, taking off her glove and uh, thus revealing that she has a wedding ring. Mm-hmm. But uh, she soon learns to regret this and, in fact, starts chasing after her seducer. And there's a wonderful scene uh, chasing back and forth through this museum, only to end up in a cab outside the museum where the man ravishes her with her consent, uh, if that's what we can call it, yeah. by the standards of liberalism. But, of course, Brandon Palma is a much more sophisticated man, and so he points out that consent might not be what we call this. It, that, that word might convey nothing of what is in yeah. fact happening. At any rate, the man does ravish her in the taxi and then up at his apartment somewhere in Manhattan. Then she has a nasty surprise when she wakes up and wants to leave in the evening. Uh, the man ha- has uh, sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, indeed, by his behavior, it's the thing that he, that's what, that's what his job really is, spreading disease around the tri-state area. And uh, no doubt there are many willing women. Before she has much time to worry about her disease, and uh, just after she has remembered that she lost her ring and goes back to the apartment to get it back, uh, she gets murdered. It's a uh, shocking scene. Uh, I watched it again for the movie, and it it is quite gruesome. I'm... uh, unhappy to have to uh, look at these things, but uh, if if the Palma thinks that this is something uh, we're thinking about, I tend to trust him. And that is just the first act of the movie. The rest of the movie, uh, about an hour out of an hour and 45 minutes, is the search for the killer, the woman's son, and the last person to have seen her alive and to have caught a glimpse of the murderer, who is a whore played by Nancy Allen, these two kids, really, you know, uh, 18-year-olds, yeah. 20-somethings, uh, are chased by the murderer and in their turn concoct a plan to somehow uh, force the issue, figure out who it is. As with the cop on the case, Dennis France, they all suspect that maybe the woman's shrink was shielding a psychopath who maybe did it, because psychopaths do that. They're crazy people. They might murder somebody. Throughout the movie, it gradually is, becomes revealed that the... Shrink himself, played by Michael Caine, is the murderer because Mm -hmm. he is not merely transsexual. He is also uh, himself a psychopath, suffers from split personality, as we uh, amusingly call it, Mm -hmm. Uh, a kind of madness that forces out, uh, you could say, a a complex aspect of of being a man and uh, leaves the shrink not quite human. He, He is two fragments of a human being, but that's not. Uh, human. He is not uh, somebody suffering from a split personality. He's a madman. A personality mm-hmm. is not something you can split. It does not have parts where you could take it apart and reconfigure it with other parts, presumably. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we see that as a shrink, he is a model of liberal correctness. He is all for liberation, for freedom of speech, for self-expression, for rational attending to the feelings. He mm-hmm. is utterly unerotic, calculated, mannered, polite, handsome even. He's the ideal sensitive male is what I'm saying. <laughs> but, uh, but there's another side to him. He is a, a madman who murders women because in a way they are a, a threat to this self-control, this pose of official rationality, of scientific uh, self-control. Mm-hmm. And so you could say that he is the best exponent of what liberalism might do to the soul. As a scientist, he cannot simply condemn himself. He can't get moralistic about identities and uh, behaviors. He cannot call a psycho a psycho, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. But were this not a problem, he would not be a psycho in the first place. The movie ultimately turns out to be about this interesting character and what it might mean to go around playing with identities. 
What if you are stuck between the demands of science, which are an attack on morality, and the demands of the law? Since, after mm-hmm. all, a psychiatrist is both a doctor and, in, uh, in some ways, bound by the law. Think about just how important psychiatry is to the American courts. Here we see what it might mean for a man to be stuck between these two demands of the law and of science, which make it impossible for him to deal with his own problems. This makes it uh, not only a fascinating movie, but something worth watching again and again and thinking about why is this so much of our time? The movie includes uh, a scene of, as you said, of uh, a guy who used to be a really manly man in the special forces who turned himself into a woman, showing uh, again uh, how prescient Brian De Palma was. It predicted perfectly Bruce Jenner, the former Olympian, deciding mm-hmm. to be a woman and becoming, mm-hmm. from, uh, again, very celebrated, this time for being stunning and brave, a strong independent woman, better mm-hmm. than the normal women. This sort of caricature, this decadent picture of America was already predicted in Brian De Palma and showing that once people have to face, once manly men have to face their mortality, the loss of those powers that put them on top of the world, they might do something absolutely insane because it's the only act of the will available to them anymore. And then, of course, there are varieties of of that kind of behavior, but they all have in common this assertion of the will that mounts scientific, mutilating, surgical attack on nature as an attempt to fix madness and therefore to affix madness to a part that one can excise from oneself. So far from being some kind of uh, anti-woman misogyny or uh, anything like that, uh, Dress to Kill is all about the, uh, the consequences of insisting on identitarian liberalism. Mm-hmm. They will not all be pleasant. Some of them will be shocking. Of course, in the 70s, this made much more sense in the milieu of horrifying rises in crime in the cities, all sorts of social misery, and of course, just on the one hand, horrifying rape statistics, and on the other hand, just orgies running around the country, which were very prudishly called the sexual revolution, as Mm -hmm. though these people were writing manifestos and attending meetings or something. (laughs) So, And of course, I should not forget awful, awful uh, drugs. Uh, That too happened. So uh, nowadays, uh, America doesn't have that much crime, although crime is, again, booming. And mm-hmm. rape is not the problem. It was in the 70s. But uh, on the other hand, uh, what seemed the, 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 the least plausible part of the story, the transsexual, which is now called the transgender, as you well mm-hmm. pointed out, uh, has become central to elite ideology. The liberals yep. of the 70s were stuck with psychiatry. Now they have this transgender thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the transformation of sex into gender itself suggests that it is something that can be taken under control ideologically. It's mm-hmm. not a problem for a human being. It's nothing to worry about in terms of tragedy or horror. It's something that could be uh, therapeutically fixed. If our audience will uh, watch the movie, I think they will see that uh, it's not just us. It's Brian De Palma who is up for cancellation these days since yeah. he suggests that this is not possible. Well, you know, it was interesting what you were saying about how in this kind of society, literally no, seemingly no restraints to your desire and your wanting to act upon them, that somehow psychiatry itself, say for Dr. Elliot, the Michael Caine character, you know, that that's, that, that cannot control that part of him, the Bobby part, the violent killer part, the woman part, even within the psychiatrist itself, it can't be controlled. And when you think about the kind of criticisms at the time made from the National Organization of Women and so forth. Oddly enough, you know, the organization that was the most, you could say, in favor of sexual liberation for women, um, in this case now, all of a sudden come out and they sort of sounded a little bit like prudes in the sense of saying, how dare you show this type of dirty material here? Um, and, and how dare you question what our ambitions are? And this, this I do know, one, one of the problems answers was, you know, give me a break. You know, this is New York City, 1979, 1980, around there. You know, there is no, you know, that that kind of thing that you're trying to argue to hold things back doesn't exist anymore. And so you're stuck all with is some kind of a scientific. um, So, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Elliot does talk therapy. Um, Well, that's not going to solve uh, Dr. Elliot's own problems. Maybe it might help on the margins, uh, 
uh, Angie Dickinson, Kate's character, uh, but it doesn't really seem to do much any good for her either. It's just a pastime. Um, it's something that wealthy women do, wealthy people do um, when they don't go to church anymore or and they, they have private issues that they want to grapple with. So you don't no longer go to the confessional, you go talk to the shrink. Um, but for, for the doctor's own problem, uh, his kind of psychotic side to him, you know, his talk therapy is not going to work. So we do also see the, the asylum, the institution, Bellevue in New York, and you know, that's just going to house his body. It surely isn't going to help him deal with any problems. Um, but the, the science is not going to be able to really address this issue. All it can do, it can, you can use the science and the technology like the son, Peter, to solve the crime and to catch the killer. But you're not going to be able to control this type of desire. And that's kind of a scary thing when you begin to think that, well, the, the scientific establishment, at least as it's embodied in Dr. Elliot, you know, is itself perhaps could itself contain these kind of psychotic elements if there's nothing to restrain it. This is when you get this kind of that horrific elevator scene. I mean, that's, that's, you might say kind of the result of that. Now, is it, is this kind of an indictment of the scientific project at large? No, of course we see it is what cap captures the killer. Old fashioned police techniques bound by the law are not gonna be able to do the kinds of things that the enterprising son when he hooks up with the prostitute, uh, the Nancy Allen character, to break into his office and try to find out who his clients are so they can find the killer. And of course, they find out that it's the doctor himself who's the killer, but that's what's needed. And so you have this kind of elaborate contraption photography and Super 8 film to capture the patients coming in and out that the son invents. And it's from that that they're able to identify who the killer is. They still at this time don't know it's Dr. Elliot because Dr. Elliot's dressed in drag as kind of a blonde woman with dark sunglasses. Um, we see glimpses of this blonde woman in dark sunglasses when Kate is at the museum and she's leaving to go to the cab to, for her tryst with that anonymous man back at his place or in the backseat of the cab, then back at the place. There's a brief glimpse there of, of Bobby, of Dr. Elliot dressed as Bobby picking up the glove that she dropped. And then of course, right before she's killed in the elevator, we see Bobby behind the door at the end of the hallway. And so throughout that, this is kind of inching closer and closer to that scene, which happens in the first third of the movie. And so Angie Dickinson is gone. And then the last two thirds are just trying to, trying to seek out the killer. But that's a very interesting point about how science doesn't seem to be enough. And, and I'd forgotten, you know, that De Palma himself was kind of, you know, this would show his leftism that I guess he doesn't think there's much you can do to restore any type of prudish or even prudential limits upon desire. And, you know, therefore his, his movie really isn't worthy of criticism, he doesn't think, in that sense at least, or he thinks they're, they're, they're coming from a place that's out of bounds because the society, at least as he is depicting it, and as part as he understands it, you know, and perhaps slowly but surely kind of developing at least since 1960, is uh, becoming more and more of this place where there are no longer the restraints of law and, and the restraints of conscience and of shame and of guilt feelings, uh, especially with regard to sexual matters and as they play out. And so that was a very interesting point you made. Yes, I think the importance of this question, who is this scientist guy and is his science any better than um, what we had seen in Hitchcock is uh hard to overstate most of the movie after all is about finding out who is this killer and that means finding out also why he did it or why mm -hmm. he is what he is uh and uh the movie suggests as psycho did that people get maybe close but uh but they they blink they run away from the realization when it comes to them as mm -hmm. in psycho in dress to kill at the end of the movie, another psychiatrist mm -hmm. who, of course, had had no idea that any of this was happening and who has no experience of mm -hmm. the suffering involved, reassures everybody that, well, what had happened was, and he explains that this man had uh, repressed desires, and because he repressed them, uh, this made him mad and uh, eventually drove him to do all these terrible things. But after all, you know, it's a kind of simple maladaptation. If you think about it, if they had caught it in time, uh, if they had uh, done things otherwise, it would have been different. 
the, the recommendation that seems to be involved there is that if only people talked more about the crazy desires they have, then it would become uh, possible for therapy to deal with them better. Mm. After all, the problem with therapy, at least uh, this far, is that if you don't tell people you have this problem, there's nothing they can do for you. Yeah. They, they would not be able even to know. And uh, you could say that this is part of the scam of uh, therapeutic enlightenment. Uh, you have to confess your problems to people who promise that they will solve them, but they do not know what those problems are unless you tell them. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to know you better than you know yourself. They're supposed to be able to fix you. But on the other hand, uh, they would not even know who you are unless you mm-hmm. told them. This, you could say, reproduces the paradox of individuality. If the individual uh, liberal is supposed to be well-adjusted and psychopaths are, after all, merely maladjusted creatures, mm-hmm. then there would seem to be a human type and everybody has to be made into that type by therapy mm-hmm. until uh, there's no more human individuality. Uh, everybody can hand, be perfectly human adjusted. Individuality escapes mm-hmm. therapy. It escapes liberal statements about your feelings or your desires then uh, it, it can uh, not be recognized by liberalism. Uh, after all, it might be reactionary, like the cop played by Dennis Franz, who is disgusted with all the crazy people doing all these criminal things in New York. And mm-hmm. he's very judgmental of the murdered woman whose uh, murder he wants, murder he wants to bring to justice. After all, she was an adulteress going around uh, in, in public, twisting. Yes. Not to say that he's a very bright fellow, but he's the only one who seems to have any grasp of moral uh, imperatives. He's the only one who seems to realize that the unwillingness to make moral judgments mm-hmm. must lead ultimately to uh, a kind of collapse of society. It would mean that people can't even tell that there's something really troublesome going on since they're not willing to be judgmental about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, they will be abetting murder, they will be abetting yep. all sorts of evils under the guise of tolerance. Yeah, Dennis uh, Franz is not tolerant. I mean, you know, so his, his ter- at least by contemporary standards of liberalism at that time, you know, so he keeps referring to psychos and weirdos instead of, you know, maladaptation and, and uh, emotional trauma and so forth. He calls the prostitute, who herself speaks of it as an escort, uh, he calls her just a whore granted a Park Avenue whore, so a high-class whore. And uh, like you said, he refers to Angie Dickinson. You know, who knows if she's been going out every day and just, you know, just some woman just sleeping with whoever she she meets. Because after all, when she gets in the cab with this guy, she has sex with them right in the back seat, much to the enjoyment of the, the cab driver, apparently, because that's where Dennis Franz was getting all this information from. And so, you know, his view is moralistic. His view is angry. He's not going to be using the kind of psychotic psychiatric language or psychological or psychoanalytical language. He is going to use the language of judgment and of the law. And he wants to find, he wants to find out who the killer is. And he suspects that psychiatry is just a big kind of game to hide killers and it's making his job harder. And that's why he has to in a way farm out the, you know, the solving of the crime to, to the son or really to the, to the uh, hooker, to Nancy Allen, because he he blackmails her and threatens her that she's going to be the suspect if she doesn't find out who's on the doctor's list. And so that's where the plan is concocted, ultimately, to get into side, inside Dr. Elliott's office to find out the names of the patients. Of course, that's the reveal when we find out that Dr. Elliott is the patient. The doctor is the patient and the doctor is the killer. Indeed, it seems like the respectability in the old sense, the the things with which uh, the dead murdered woman was struggling. She's uh, unhappily married and uh, she doesn't think there's any way out. Her mother wants to visit her, but she doesn't want to see her mother. All of these kinds of ordinary problems are um, uh, old fashioned. Respectability now means something else. It means that the therapist is above suspicion. The respectable people have changed and their claim to respectability itself has changed. Doctor is humanitarian, a benefactor of mankind. To suspect Mm -hmm. him is somehow uh, very immoral, whereas otherwise people just have their ordinary private lives without any particular claim to uh, public appreciation. 
but uh, the doctor, of course, is not merely humanitarian who should be applauded rather than uh, suspected, but he is also a scientific authority. Mm-hmm. He knows things that other people say cops don't know and therefore can't judge, and therefore they cannot tell him uh, how to run an investigation. Uh, he this double cover as humanitarian and scientist uh, puts the doctor beyond suspicion and forces the cop to do this uh, very immoral thing to blackmail the whore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, you could say it's very funny that he forces her to do justice, uh, <laughs> of course, at, at considerable risk to herself. You could say that uh, this is another problem that comes with respectability. As you said, she calls herself an escort. Uh, People are uh, all of a sudden very uh, uh, pious and uh, full of shame when it comes to this. They will not call a whore a whore. Today, I believe they would not say escort, but sex worker. That's right. To emphasize that this is, in fact, work against what was once American common sense about what constitutes work. And Nancy Allen would not be against the euphemism of sex worker because she, I mean, in her job and in her life, I mean, that's how she views everything. She's very savvy. You know, we first see her, she's just finished a session with one of her Johns who's giving her a stock tip. And she loves to use these stock tips to, you know, to make money. We see her playing the market on the phone at one point. And so she's, and she's very astute in terms of how she can make money. She aspires in many respects to a kind of class and wealth position and maybe respectability that Kate already has. And she's going to use her body and use sex work um, to get there. But also just this whole notion of euphemism is interesting because that is, you know, so just the way in which we have a hard time today trying to find the right words to speak of these things as we get new words introduced of how we're supposed to talk about this, you know, transsexual, now it's transgender, you know, and then what is gender and then gender identity and all these kind of new names come along and they're kind of euphemistically as old names, the, the Dennis Franz names, those get thrown out the window. They're too moralistic. They're unscientific. Uh, they have a degree of cruelty because you're calling a whore a whore, and that somehow is is insulting. So you can't you can't insult anybody. You know, even though Dennis Fran's point of view is being a whore is wrong. It's morally wrong behavior, and every you know everybody knows knows it's the case, and that's why they were called whores. Um, but then no, it's an escort, and uh, but this whole kind of question of new terms for old things, somehow that language would be one way. You know, the, the, the talking cure would be one way to deal with these problems. And that turns out to be a failure in this movie. We never actually see the uh, attempt to try to use surgery and technology to change the body, although it is described uh, after the, the murder is solved and the uh, son, Peter, uh, uh, played by, what's his name, Keith Gordon and Nancy Allen are having lunch. Interestingly, that lunch is at the top of the Twin Towers at the Windows of the World restaurant. And Nancy Allen is going in through a kind of very in-depth description of what at that time at least was called a penectomy and then also the vaginoplasty, you know, uh, and there was called a, a sex change operation. Now it's called gender reassignment surgery. But so, but as she, she's laying this out to Peter and it kind of, once again, it's, it's almost the words can be just as horrifying the way she's describing it in this kind of cold scientific manner of basically castration is what's going on there. And it's kind of amusing in that scene. There's a woman sitting at another table we see kind of overhearing their conversation. And she is you know, filled with revulsion at this idea, even though that was something that had been going on throughout the 70s. You know, maybe it wasn't as common or it surely wasn't as spoken about in public. But people surely knew about this stuff back then. And uh, uh, but that's, you know, the movie ends with kind of a just scientific discussion of castration. Uh, Peter doesn't like that. Of course, his name is Peter. His mom even makes a joke about that for his computer that he's building. She says, why don't you call it a Peter? You know, you invented it. You can name it after yourself. You know, so we have this type of, so Peter doesn't want to hear about castration. Uh, who, what male does or what man does. Um, and yet somehow there's a, already a kind of castration going on throughout this movie. And even Dr. Elliot, while he goes to that other doctor to talk about his problems and perhaps look into a surgery, the talk therapy is not going to work for him. So maybe the change the body will work for him. Um, but he never really wants to go through with it. 
And so all he ends up with is being confined in the asylum. This, this whole language of changing terms and of the talk therapy on the one hand, and then, of course, the body therapy on the other hand. And I think this kind of theme of castration, this is, once again, a movie in De Palma where it's more women-centric in the sense we have Kate's perspective throughout the whole first third of the movie. Um, and then that culminates in her murder. And then in the second half, we have the son, and we all, but we also have the Nancy Allen character, a different type of modern woman, um, but uh, using sex to, to get ahead, but ultimately somehow perhaps to become that free and independent woman, you know, the very type of women who would criticize this movie uh, as being a, about violence against women. You, you have these kind of interesting paradoxes going on there. The bodily change the body or change the speech. For enlightenment to be something else than a scam, indeed, it would have to do more than change words. It would have to change beliefs and change realities. Mm -hmm. uh, to some extent, uh, the ideology, uh, forcing people to say this rather than that and using their sense of shame or their fear of losing a job, etc., mm -hmm. to get them to do it, helps with changing beliefs, although you wonder how far. But, mm -hmm. uh, to, but you have to change realities, too. And uh, so you could say that liberalism ends up having to recreate man's nature, including mm -hmm. by castrating men and turning mm -hmm. them into women. That is a sign of scientific transformation, not merely an act of the will. And uh, that might be uh, identitarian liberalism that you can believe in. You can be whoever you want to be. The horror of it, however, does not uh, appall this uh, young lady. She's uh, not merely a yeah. uh, Wall Street whore. She's, uh, she's also apparently uh, into the whole uh, scientific control of nature thing. Yeah. Uh, science can do it. It's medicine. What is there to be so uptight about? Indeed, she might think it's good lunch conversation, although it may uh, horrify her uh, young friend. Indeed, mm -hmm. you may say that at some level she might like castration because... Yeah. Uh, well, uh, she has uh, strong feelings and uh, terrible fears, what with uh, having been almost murdered. Yeah. And uh, yeah. she might blame men for that. From the distance created by the story, we can uh, be skeptical. Like in Psycho, Churchill, uh, Hitchcock leaves us with uh, uh, a psychiatrist telling the story about why the psycho is the psycho, which is mm -hmm. absolutely crazy. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a man who has absolutely no experience, and on the strength of having no experience, he gives you the authoritative scientific explanation of the events mm -hmm. that you have witnessed, or that at least people in the story have to some extent witnessed. And it seems like there is a great desire in Dress to Kill as in uh, Psycho for people who have no experience, pardon me, who have no science, to believe the people who are scientists, or so they say, but have no experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, it's amazing uh, yep. that people wish to be liberated from what they themselves have been witnessing by uh, people who have not witnessed it and whose authority proceeds directly from that ignorance. And uh, that is a very skeptical view of this modern therapeutic science, this psychiatry. And you could say, uh, you know, however much a man of the left, Brian De Palma must be uh, not merely skeptical, but that's it against this kind of psychiatry because it would put him out of business. Yeah. Uh, the point after all he's making is that his vision of what sexual identities might mean is much truer than the one popularized from psychiatry into the law, into manners, into a new euphemistic language. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, of course, has to do with why would his movies be so ugly? Mm -hmm. Well, he's uh, willing to tell the ugly truth to a society that lives by euphemisms. Yep. People wish to hide from themselves things, especially, of course, those things that uh, hurt other people, but not themselves. And that's why, and, you know, maybe in, in dreams, the movie begins with a dream that ends up with a rape. And the movie ends with a dream, with Nancy Allen's dream, of somehow Dr. Elliot escaping from the asylum as the inmates are ruling him on. He's killed a nurse. He's dressed as a nurse. And now he's going to show up at Peter's house where she's staying while she's showering again in the shower. And there he brutally murders her, of which, of course, she wakes up screaming in bed. So even for all the glee she takes in telling the story about, cast, you know, uh, surgical castration and, and vaginoplasty and so on, uh, she herself is haunted by something that perhaps she even 
understands or that needs to understand, but Palmer wants to show us, can't be so easily repressed, as it were, because as you said, euphemism and even bodily change is not going to deal with this problem of, of sexuality and of sexual desire. Exactly. As with Carrie, the conclusion of the movie suggests that the protagonist, she is not persuaded by uh, the things she's supposed to believe. She is not persuaded, that is, that her uh, kind of uh, liberal rationalism really explains human nature. It is very comforting in a way, but it lacks power. And that would seem to come from the fact that uh, it cannot control people. Explaining why this guy went crazy when it's too late to do anything about it uh, isn't particularly persuasive Mm. had the the science enabled people to stop him in advance of becoming a monster. That might have been uh, not merely life-saving, but uh, awe-inspiring. But of course, there's no such power. And explanations after the fact sound like so many uh, moralistic, uh, pious statements by people who themselves don't necessarily believe them but feel obliged to mouth them off since uh, something must be said to to, to silence, so to speak, fear. That's Uh, their role in society as authorities is just supposedly they have this science that puts them in the position of knowing the human soul and knowing human desire, including its pathologies. But it turns out they don't. And uh, at least in this film, they don't. Indeed. So it might take somebody like the Palma, it might take some kind of storytelling that Mm -hmm. dramatizes the human problem and starts with where people start themselves. What is their perspective? What is Mm -hmm. the problem this person is going through? You could say that the plot uh, goes from a murder to trying to solve it, both portrayed as explicitly as uh, the Palma can, which is more than most people, uh, you know, yeah. he really goes way out there. But uh, that is, is supposed to show you that maybe there is some kind of future for America. After all, this uh, young man and this young woman prove much better able to deal with the madness of the times mm-hmm. than the, the, the woman who gets murdered, who was in certain ways classier. As you mentioned before, I, I, I joke that she's a kind of low-rent Anna Karenina, kind of low-rent mm-hmm. Madame Bovary. She wants romance. She wants beauty. She wants the museum, her diamond ring, her classy uh, dress. Mm-hmm. But uh, she also, for that reason, not only falls from grace, but uh, you know, and ends up catastrophically. These uh, younger people, the kids, you can almost call them, are... Uh, in no way deluded by uh, beautiful things seen in museums. They don't have high expectations, Mm -hmm. but they are all American in being practical. Uh, The the girl is playing the stock market because after all, from a certain point of view, the stock market is all about gossip. It's all Mm -hmm. about who you Mm -hmm. know. It's all about what somebody's saying about which stocks will be going up. Mm -hmm. And the guy is dealing with computers since if you want rational control of things, uh, it's uh, most obvious to look at those things that are uh, most under human control or are made up, that is to say, rather than being natural beings. Yep. You could say that uh, both the young woman and the young man largely lack self-knowledge and are um, focusing on things they can control, things that they can do, that that will be some kind of success, some kind of uh, human achievement that's uh, that makes life worth living and you know mm-hmm. that's very questionable but it is better than the self-obsessed uh, everybody should go to uh, shrink attitude yeah. of the previous generation because that gave people absolutely no resources to deal with themselves if you put the the nancy allen character liz the prostitute you know her kind of matter-of-factness about sex her matter-of-factness about life she uh, unashamedly is out to make money to acquire things, to live what she thinks is a respectable life and a comfortable life. That's her object there. She seems to hold no illusions about anything or anyone. Uh, And she's pretty good at making money and she buys art. Um, You had pointed out, she buys art to, not because she's an art lover, uh, say in the way in which Kate was an art lover or at least pretended to be an art lover or thought that might be some way where her desire could find some degree of satisfaction, right? Or completion in art. Um, Kate just buys art because she hopes the artist will die and it might be worth money. And then of course the son, the, the 
Peter character, the Keith Gordon character, you know, all about the digital world, you know, all about computers. He's created a computer that can make certain number of calculations and carry numbers over. And he's very impressed by this. And, you know, you begin to think, well, you put the stock market together with the computer and the young liberated woman. We almost have the yuppie phenomenon you know, before it even happened in a way kind of being predicted by De Palma there. And it's a different way of life. It's not going to be the one that visits the psychiatrist, you know, to be psychoanalyzed on the couch every, you know, every week or so. This is going to be a different kind of more outward looking way. And it is more matter of fact. It, it, it at least claims it suffers no delusions, although it has its own delusions inherent within it. Um, but it's kind of a progenitor to the 1980s, which this is right at the beginning of. All right, John, I think we're uh, coming to the conclusion of our conversation. This is a wonderful movie, but it's, of course, only for the people who bear the shock of, of the sort of ugliness. Uh, yeah, we should probably give people, a trigger warning there. It is pretty gruesome. Just stay away. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, just leave it, so to speak, at listening to the conversation yeah. about the ugly things, which hopefully yeah. is more uh, enlightening. I think uh, the movie is worth seeing and seeing again and talking about because it gives you a, a number of portraits of how will different kinds of Americans deal with the shamelessness of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And the sources of that shamelessness are varied. Uh, partly it's a problem that comes from science. Science tells you to be objective about matters and uh, in a way to hide nothing, hides the the decency, pardon me, it destroys the decencies of society. And uh, as psychiatry, it of course is an invasion of privacy as well. Other sources come from the dissatisfaction people feel with the moral stringencies of society, since there's always a great distinction between the common good and the private good. And uh, there are further others that come from madness of various kinds. Uh, The the movie portrays them all in New York at a time when they all were all running around in a somewhat chaotic way. And Mm -hmm. yet it uh, shows them in their distinctions very carefully and therefore proves it is much more uh, acute in judgment of character, in uh, establishing for you what these kinds of people are and what motivates them than either scientists or moralists are. And uh, that I think is the major recommendation for um, uh, cinema. That uh, You might come in for the thrills, for the shocks, for the uh, uh, crazy uh, transgressive stuff. Mm -hmm. But the point that Palma is trying to make is that this is a crazy world and it takes uh, care in, in looking at what's going on to understand why people react in this way. Mm-hmm. What is the problem these people are dealing with? Why are their desires pointing them in these directions? How are they dealing with their mortality? The, you know, it's not immediately obvious why a kid who lost his father in Vietnam and is kind of angry about it, we've seen one scene, should mm-hmm. also be a computer geek. Yeah. And he should also be so interested in investigation. But if you think about it enough, you might put all these things together and see a certain version of boyish spiritedness in America. Yes. And so with all the other characters, the different things that are shown in the story do come together as portraits, as character sketches, and therefore as visions of what American freedom might look like to different people. And why on the one hand we're so confused about it and why on the other hand we might learn that some of them can work and some other ones which are crazy we'll have to deal with, uh, including by the use of the law. The law, they finally capture their man, but the law seems to be pretty ineffective here. You know, earlier before we were recording, you were saying Dennis Franz, you know, he, he goes back to 1972 to the Nixon law and order stuff, you know, and and when, when the crime wave was really hitting at a height or, or just beginning to hit at a height. And so you had this kind of anger of ordinary people. We need to crack down on this. And that's Dennis Franz's kind of position. But by 1980, he, he himself is limited. And so, you know, is there going to be a res, res, resurgence of that kind of uh, question of upholding and defending the law that might require some anger at the injustices going on or not? De Palma leaves that open. For sure, we see a certain type of liberated woman. And for sure, we see this kind of young, intelligent, spirited young man who's, you know, kind of on the vanguard of of the latest in computer technology. And those are surely going to be parts of the future. Um, 
You know, it's interesting that the only politics we see in the movie is a Newsweek magazine cover, as you know, I may have mentioned earlier, you know, but it's all about the Democratic primaries. It's about Jimmy Carter and uh, Ted Kennedy's attempt to seize the nomination from him in the 1980 primaries. And so we don't see about Reagan yet. You know, so Reagan might be something there that kind of lurks in the background. And of course, De Palma being a leftist surely is not going to be happy with Reaganism, but he surely isn't happy with what Ford or with what Carter and Kennedy seem to be offering anyone as well. And so politics is kind of out outside of this, this, this movie here. It's post-political in a way. Um, and so how does one live freedom in this type of new scenario. The uh, Palma, I think, like you said, just offering certain portraits, not sure for sure, not offering any answers, but doesn't want us to flinch away from the ugliness that could be there as well. It's uh, only in a somewhat complicated way that you could see, uh, you could say a coalition of law and order between the young techno geek and mm -hmm. the young whore and the old cop. One reason American cities had much less crime in the 90s is how many corporations moved into those cities and made demands on the local mm -hmm. politics. Uh, you know, one could say uh, certain similar things for the various uh, waves in by which women have come to dominate the heights of American society and mm -hmm. ended up with a feminist elite that surely is... Uh, to some extent uh, tied up with, uh, say, uh, drugging children, and uh, that makes for a certain kind of peaceableness. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Americans used to be rather more violent than they are, that is to say, young men especially. It's, it's mm -hmm. a very, of course, politically, it's much more complicated than that, but uh, I think uh, looking at these leading uh, characters, it's, uh, you know, you can begin to think about what uh, does the politics of America really hold in store? What is it that we're going to look forward to? It, it might seem strange that the men will be a lot more private and the women will be a lot more public, but that mm -hmm. too turned out to be prophetic. What we might do about this new society is, of course, beyond Palma's purview, and surely uh, yeah. people on different sides of the political debate will go in very different directions. But uh, all of them would do very well to learn how far the craziness goes. Yeah. And uh, both how, so to speak, spontaneously it occurs in our society, since the restraints and the shame are over. And on the other hand, how uh, difficult it would be to think about the human drama without the kinds of euphemisms of uh, liberal therapy, which after all, I mean, the word sex is, uh, this is yeah. not the word that anybody ever used, I guess, before the year 1900 or something like that. Yeah. And now it is omnipresent. Experience has to been be covered up by in gender, a way I that think. maybe only shocks yeah. can uncover that yeah. these are very serious problems and what people want out of life and how to properly describe their experiences without ascribing to those experiences authority is uh, both very necessary and yet very difficult work. And in that sense, as an archaeologist of the soul, I think the Palma is very useful, precisely to the extent to which he shows up problems that might not be soluble, either in themselves or at least uh, in, in our situation for us. Mm -hmm. That, I think, you know, um, guarantees his unpopularity since he robs both sides of the, the claim that they will fix the problem. Yep. But uh, I think all people who are troubled by our society and who recognize that this kind of decadence is almost unexampled, should look at where that decadence comes from in, in, in terms of a desperate uh, quest to fulfill desires and to concoct identities that might do the job. Mm -hmm. All right, John, uh, thanks very much for joining me again. Uh, we have, uh, as uh, promised at the beginning, done uh, our level best to get canceled by uh, looking <laughs> at the, the whole madness around trans issues, this whole political struggle without getting into the current politics, but rather looking at these visions that were already obvious to people like Brian De Palma in the 70s That's right. of yeah. constructing your identity and pulling everything in from surgical mutilation to uh, crazy uh, pretenses of psychology into the mm -hmm. bargain and yep. seeing what you might achieve that way. Even a cancellation scandal would do very well for Brian De Palma's reputation. At this point, exactly, yes. <laughs> so hopefully uh, this will make people pay a lot more attention to something that deserves that attention and uh, might uh, you know, even uh, make people be a bit more daring as artists. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, for Brian sure. Palma was not a coward, 
and I'm not sure you can say that about just about any artist nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's that's a good point. You know, hopefully, in a way, if anything, do our small part to kind of get a cancellation c- controversy for De Palma. And then, of course, artists then can begin to think about whether they're filmmakers or what have you, you know, what are the pieties what are the blind spots to our pieties today some of them are not so different from 1980 but totally different circumstances and maybe have the daring uh you know because here we are 40 years after De Palma's movie and we're we're still talking about it so to daring to make a movie today that would be worthwhile speaking about 40 years from now you know and uh hopefully that that will happen well, John, uh, we have to find out some more De Palma to talk yeah. and uh, maintain our shocking streak of thrillers. Okay. And all the best meanwhile. Same to you, Titus. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.